0: Today, friends, we are talking about something that I have never preached on. I have never, ever touched on what it means to be saved. 20 years of ministry, and we're going to examine that this morning. But what you're going to hear is maybe a little different perspective. But what I'd love to have us do as we prepare for worship this morning is to think about what is it from which we need to be saved? What is it that we need to do in this community that might be saving of others? What is it that the world needs right now? The term is soteriology. It is the science of or study of salvation. And so we're going to examine that this morning. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, we come into this place on this beautiful day. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, help us feel your presence in palpable ways. And as we examine this whole idea of salvation on this communion Sunday, we seek your guidance in the midst of this time of worship. Help us truly be the body of Christ. As we gather in this place, whether we are from Kansas or India or anywhere, help us be united this morning. We ask your blessing on this service of worship, all in the powerful name of the one we seek to follow, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Friends, as we prepare for the scriptures that John will bring to us this morning, in the Ephesian scripture, listen for the relationship that God is seeking to have with each of us. Then we'll respond and move to the gospel. John.
1: But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Holy Wisdom, Holy Word. Thanks Peter Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word.
0: Thanks, Peter God. You may be seated. In the short time I have to preach this morning, I just I want to talk about a word, and I, as I said before, I have never preached on this. I started first service by asking them, have you been saved? And the reaction was incredible. People put their heads down, they shook their heads, they scowled, uh, and some smiled. But it's a a phrase that we hear throughout Christianity and have heard for millennia, this term saved. In seminary, I remember there was a word that I had never heard before. The word was soteriology. Soteriology is the science or study of salvation. Believe it or not, it is a study of salvation. And what was amazing to me in seminary was how divisive this became even for those that were called to ministry, and maybe most because of the call to ministry. On the one side, I had friends who would be considered the more conservative theologically, and they talked at length about what that meant for them. They would talk about the fact that if you didn't know Jesus, you were doomed for eternity, doomed to hell. They went all the way back, not only to the beginning, but even to the Passover feast, or the first even, the fall of Adam. That there was this separation and that God's wrath reigned throughout the whole of creation from the day that Adam fell. And that this was a God that required blood. That all you have to do is go back to the Passover feast. Remember the Passover feast? The angel of death was to come, but what prevented you from dying was taking the blood of an unblemished lamb and the the hyssop branch and painting the blood on your doorpost. And thus, you would escape (coughs) death by the blood of the lamb. They would quote scripture after scripture. And it was all about being saved from hell. But there was the other side of the equation. And the other side of the equation where those of us and I will include myself in this, that has a whole lot of trouble with the God who would send his son into the world, and I use his only for today, into the world to be killed. That it's all about blood. And my question is why does it have to all be about blood? might there be some other elements? And for those of us who were on this side of the argument, it was, about, it was more about looking at Jesus. And the whole salvific kind of discussion was centered around the actions and the words of Jesus, who no matter what happened, no matter when it happened, if anyone was in need of healing, if anyone was in need of food, if anyone was in need of anything, Jesus never refused them, but saved them From whatever it was, whatever it was, that he was constantly there as the Savior. But here's the rub. Why is it that in faith it has to be that divisive? Why is it that when, particularly when it comes to Christianity, it has to be either or? What is it about this faith where we feel like we have to choose one camp or the other? And then what happens in the midst of that, and it happened in seminary, was this incredible judgment that took place. And I've seen it over and over and over again, no matter the subject matter, that these judgments are lobbed back and forth to each other and cause incredible harm. When what does the gospel tell us? Why is it that we can't understand that we can sharpen each other, even and maybe because we disagree? Why does it have to be about judgment? Why can't it be about acceptance? Well, these two ideas have lived in tension throughout generations. And again, my hope is that somehow we can come to terms with these two pieces, these two extremes, and find some ground for discussion in the midst of both. The other issue about these two pieces is then the concentration seems to turn toward judgment on someone else. When in fact, as I listened or hear the teachings of Jesus so often, it's not about me judging you or you judging me. What was it that Jesus said? Why do you examine the speck in your brother or sister's eye? Without examining the log in your own. Sometimes what's most important when it comes to saving is to begin in our own souls. And so I want to examine some of that this morning. You know, it's it's amazing these questions, these came to me this week. Do we see our need for God personally? Do we recognize the places in our own souls in need of saving? Where are we oppressed or are we oppressing? Where are we bound or binding to others? These are also significant pieces of soteriology. And then we move out from there and ask, what do we allow God to do in and through us? Where do we stand? What do we profess? And so many other things like John Wesley's question. that's so deep. How is it truly with your soul? Because until we come to terms with what's going on inside of us, it's exceptionally difficult to move beyond that. So how is it with your soul? I love what Sawaski and Jacobson in their book, Gracious Christianity, say. They said inasmuch as the goal of salvation is to refashion the world so that it will eventually become what it was meant to be, to raise the level of existence of the universe to a level never seen before and never imagined possible. But it must begin in each of us, they write. When God's saving love enters into our lives, we are transformed. Personal salvation heals our broken souls and lifts us into a new life of love for God. That then moves out toward others and then on into the entire of creation. Personal salvation is the process through which we internalize God's love for us so that we in turn externalize that love to others. Friends, there is an incredible power in all of this. Let me move beyond this at this point. What's been interesting in these last 8 weeks of being your pastor is how often I am asked, "What is it that I am looking for in a church?" What is it am I looking for? That I am looking for in a church? Or what is it that I feel needs to be brought to any church? And I will tell you, it begins with this conversation and moves deeper into that. I've already professed to you where I stand on the whole idea of salvation. But I also believe that where it begins in the life of the church is when we study our own personal need for God. It's dangerous when suddenly the church becomes something that is a social club that simply seeks to reach out and do good in the community. Now that's a good thing, and you'll hear that in just a second. But what deepens a church, what solidifies a church What helps a church to go deeper and to grow outwardly is when we are coming together in trust and in risk and helping each other deepen faith. When we ask each other, as Wesley did, with every group that he was a part of, how is it with your soul? In other words, not just how is it with your soul and hear the answer and walk away, but how is it with your soul? Where are those places that you are struggling in your faith? How is it with your soul? Where are those places that are in need of healing? And do we trust each other enough to be willing to bring that honest questioning to the soul searching that needs to happen for every one of us? It begins with that, the going deeper And when we are in a place where we're willing to risk at that level, suddenly the disagreements take on new meaning. The disagreements become opportunities for growth. The disagreements become opportunities for us to sharpen our own ability to profess what we believe. And then we also find those places, and we all have them, where we need that growth. But that's not the end of it. So number one is I look for places in a church where we're honest enough with each other to say, this is where I need to be saved. And sometimes, and maybe often, it's from ourselves. And is Aldersgate a place where we have that level of risk and trust where we can truly share ourselves? It's an unusual church that has it. Second, the church of Jesus Christ needs to be a church that reaches out to the community, that reaches out to those in need. The church of Jesus Christ is the church that seeks to emulate what he did and what he said. The church of Jesus Christ takes time to look into the community and say, here are the places where the need exists, whether it's housing for veterans, whether it's feeding the hungry, whether it's clothing the naked, whether it's lifting up the oppressed, whether it's gathering in those who have felt unacceptable in other places, where it's giving voice to the voiceless. Is Aldersgate a church where that takes place? Is it? And do we understand why? The danger of many churches is that it becomes the center for pet projects. And there's a real danger there, because what happens when it's all around pet projects is if I have an interest and a need to go out and do something for someone else, I'm going to ask the church to engage in that. What happens, though, in the midst of that, the danger of it, is that we get involved in so many different areas that we forget that we are a church. And that we also need to concentrate on number one. And it's Alder's Gate in the midst of that. But here's the other kicker, number three, in the midst of this. It is an exceptionally unusual church that will take this third piece on. Particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually used these words. He said, you have heard it said, And then he would quote the old law. And then he adds this statement to the end of it. But I tell you, and he reinterprets the law. Jesus was constantly, constantly looking at whatever the root causes were to the oppressions that were taking place. He was constantly looking out for those widows and orphans and for others for whom they didn't have a voice. But he wasn't just becoming their voice. He was also challenging the things that were underneath that. And there are very few churches that are willing to take those things on. Why? Because it looks political. It doesn't need to be political. But we have to have the eyes of Christ in and around this community. Because if we don't, who will? To look at the deeper levels of cause, or in research we caused it, the causal antecedent conditions. Those things, those conditions that were in place that caused the problems, that caused the oppression, that caused the pain, that caused the hurt, that caused the tension. What are the deeper causes underneath that? And if we truly are, to be a place where grace happens. Isn't that a part of who we must be? Those three things. And so if you want to know what's at the root of who I am as a pastor, it's those three things. And my intent is to continue to nurture us in looking and examining and taking on those three things. But you know what's amazing? I will tell you honestly, I have never, ever seen a church as gifted as this one, as talented as this one, with the potential of this one. And yet even I say that, but so much of what you already do fits into those three things but not all. It is an incredible, rare privilege to be able to stand before you every Sunday, to visit you in your homes, to sit at the breakfast nook and hear your stories, to watch Tucker's yesterday and the incredible gathering of people there, to look at what you do for a living and the influence you have and have had on Bellevue and beyond, Issaquah, Renton, and beyond, even Seattle. My belief, however, is that there's more that we can do. It is. I feel called to this church, and I will never apologize for that. I feel called to be your pastor in this time and in this place. And I look on that rogues gallery out there, and I can say that because my dad's on that wall. (laughs) And I look at the incredible history you've had. But the beauty of communion, and the reason we do it once a month, is because of the words that I say as I lift the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood. This is the cup of the new beginning. Now, when Christ said that, did he mean that we get rid of everything that having to do with the past? No. But what we do is we look at the past and we utilize the past as the foundation upon which we build the future. And that's where we are as a church. You are on the brink of something extraordinary because you've already seen extraordinary in the life of this church. And it's time to go there again. My evaluation will be in those three things. Are each of you seeking to deepen your faith? Is this church willing to risk and trust and risk more and trust more so that together we can deepen faith with and for each other? Are we willing to look beyond ourselves, which you already do in so many ways, and help those who are in need? And are we willing to go deeper and examine, and not just examine, but to change the root causes of what causes damage in people and in the world? That's where I am, and that brings us to this table. For these elements, no matter where you are on that spectrum of soteriology, no matter where you are on whether you believe that Jesus is the only way, and that it is through him that you have access to God, these elements remind you of that. Or whether it is that you seek to be the hands and the feet and the eyes and ears and voice of Christ in the world today because of the need that is there, then these are reminders of that. If you are one who believes that it is the blood, then you have this cup. If you're one that believes that it is the actions that we take, then you have this bread. No matter where you are, This is for you as a reminder. Do you hear that? You are absolutely a a place where grace happens. My challenge to you is now what? Now where? Now how do we go? Friends, as you see in here, the invitation to the table is there. But particularly after this message, I want to give us just a few moments in the quietness of this place to ask you this question. Have you you come to terms with where you stand in your faith? Or where are those places where you need to go deeper? Have you taken on the opportunities that Christ or God has presented to you to save? Or are there places where you have turned from those things? This is a time as we prepare for communion, for confession. And it's something we miss in mainline churches too much. So I want to give us some time, just a few moments, to prayerfully consider whether or not there are things that we have missed, and to commit ourselves in this month to not miss them. Let's just take a few moments in the quietness of this place.